Hello and welcome to my second six-day compilation series of Silence. Each day over the next six days, I'm bringing you the best of some 13 hours of raw honesty and vulnerability that happens on this show. Silence is a weekly podcast and conversation between women in science, technology, engineering and mathematics, or STEM. All of my guests are highly accomplished females, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. I deliberately keep their identities secret so that they have real freedom to share their experiences, wisdom and hope about surviving and thriving in what often feels like a very male-dominated world. So whatever it is you do with your own life, if you ever feel like you don't fit in or that you're in a minority in some way, you may find some inspiration here. Trust me, I was one of very few women in mechanical engineering for a number of years. I know the feeling. Have a listen to this collection of sound bites from some amazing trailblazers, and you might, just as I always do, get motivated to be the best version of yourself. Enjoy. I've got a huge issue with this, having it at all. I think it's a really bad message to give to women, and I think you know what we should instead say to women is, you know, if you want to be a stay-at-home mum, that's fine. If you want to be a single mother, that's fine. If you want to have a career or not have a career, that's fine. Not because there's really three things having all entails. It's motherhood, career, and marriage or you know, partnership. And I think the message to women should be if you want to have three out of three, fine. If you want to have one out of three, fine, or two out of three, fine. But let's not give the message that you should be aiming for three out of three. You never can have it all. Life will never give you everything. I mean, in my own case, I've got amazing friends, family and all this. But, you know, I'm missing a big piece of what people have. I don't have kids. I was not able to have kids. And that's that's a big gap, right? But I have fulfillment in other areas. And don't look for having it all. I think look for finding ways to to just embrace what you have and then if you're not really happy with what you're doing for example or your job or you're feeling powerless i think that's that's kind of the biggest handicap feeling powerful and feeling that you are contributing to me that's that's having it all having respect for myself and for others and you know having that reflected back to me those are the things mm. I think that matter. Because if you look for, I need to have this, I need to have the home, I need to have the family, I need to have peace with whatever, you're not going to get that. I was, I would describe myself as quite a tomboy as a kid. Um, I used to get bullied quite a lot at school. So I very much just did my own thing. And I wouldn't say that I was lonely, but I did very much just do what I wanted. So I knew that I loved animals and I discovered that I really enjoyed mathematics. I did lots of maths Olympiads as a kid and got involved with lots of science clubs and always knew that I would probably be doing something with science or animals um, or preferably something that actually mixed the two. So it was quite serendipitous that I discovered the field of biomechanics and that I could end up mixing both of those loves together. Those of us in academia are, you know, fighting for our reputations, fighting to be seen and acknowledged for the work that we do and not wanting some of our experiences to overshadow that. So I think that this is sort of the necessary format for true honesty and for those stories that we all have to kind of get out there.
You know, I was thinking about that the other day because I was watching A Wrinkle in Time on the airplane coming back from New York last week. And that was my favorite book when I was a little girl. And it really made me want to know more about science and physics. And I always had an interest in science. And um, after reading that book, I started really digging into what it meant to be a physicist, because the idea of quantum leaping, which that book introduced to me as a little girl, really ignited my imagination. And I think later, once I found out how much money you make in the scientific community, I thought, mm, maybe there are other things in the future for me. The Female Entrepreneur Week last year, there was just this constant reiteration of if you can't see it, you can't see it. In architecture, I think it's the same, you know, it's, it's the same in a lot of other industries where the time pressure is so intense and the uh, the culture of the profession is so intense that women don't really have a lot of space to have families, um, to, to have to have both. It's like you still, I still see, there's, it's very much about making a choice. Because of the pressure to follow, um, you know, more sort of quote unquote respectable fields. So I ended up going into maths. And no, it wasn't a dream. It was more really conditioning from sort of parents and community in order to pursue a field that they would deem as being respectable. And of course, when you're young, you just want to earn approval, especially women. You know, I was always that weird kid that would take apart things to figure out how they worked, um, much to the chagrin of my parents. And um, but I had a challenging childhood as well. Um, my parents were um, not the healthiest people and they had, you know, they were drug addicts. And so I had to kind of figure out how to take care of myself at a very early age and escaping into playing video games and um, reading was really, I think, where I started to see different visions of myself in the future that might be different from maybe what my life would have been like if I, I weren't open to new concepts of what my life could be like. No, I don't think I ever wanted to be a neuroscientist I was pretty pretty sure I was going to end up in the performing arts um, for the majority of my education but that just isn't how it turned out every time I started to do things in the arts I would get pulled back to science and so I sort of followed I was one of those that followed those parallel paths there's so many of us we just don't talk about it because we keep our arts in the closet um and, you know, so I was one of those um, artist scientists um, and I, I had two loves. So I bounced back and forth. Um, I do think I got the label of being a bit of a weirdo whilst growing up. And especially where I grew up, I felt that was a very gendered thing. People often associated liking bugs with being a very male thing. It was very odd for a girl to like maths or to like science or to like bugs. And then on top of that, I had very short hair. I didn't have pierced ears. Um, I was very much a tomboy and off, looked like a boy. I would often be confused for being a little boy until about the age of 13, 14. Um, and I could tell that people didn't like that or they felt I should be fitting into some different mold, but also because I didn't really 
fit in with the people from my class or from my school. Um, I don't know. I didn't feel the pressure to fit in, which I ironically gave me the freedom to just do my own thing because people didn't like me anyway. So I might as well be disliked and do what I wanted than be disliked and not be myself. Yeah, I think it was very internal and it was my own my own sort of awakening about especially about physics and the cosmos and you know how things really are so marvelous because the cosmos is so beautiful it's it's infinitely large and then it's infinitesimally small because you get into you know the subatomic particles and everything and then you just have a whole universe that's that's micro as well as the whole universe that's macro I think I was just fascinated by that. How did I end up here? I'm a little bit of a weirdo. I <laughs> I had a hard time kind of delineating what I liked more, thinking creatively or thinking kind of mathematically or in a scientific sense. So I kind of always combined the things into one. I also didn't really have a dream as a child. I just was very content with what was happening right now. You know, I remember at some point I was like, I want to be a checkout clerk because I want to figure out how the scanner works. And my mom was like, okay, um, well, it's an attainable dream. You know, I just kind of evolved in that area of trying to figure out how things worked and had a real interest in video games when they first really started to hit the market. And um, I always played games and found, you know, that there was a real interest in wanting to learn how to modify them. And in the early days of the internet, when there were uh, IRC chat channels, I would go on and like meet people who made the games to find out how to play them better. And, you know, so it just really gave me a, a, a real love for technology through this path of playing games. And it was from that, that, um, I just found myself kind of in the right place at the right time designing websites um, because I could back at a time where uh, people really wanted them and were willing to pay a lot of money for them. And that's kind of how I got started in tech. I think back to that about how my mom just kind of put all these famous women, you know, books in my room and how this was probably planned on her part, but I should probably ask her, about, you know, what made her decide to do that? Because it definitely, definitely influenced me in wanting to um, pursue a STEM career. I definitely try to push my daughter into alternative everything, right? Like whatever is on the boy's side, that's what you should be buying, right? Or like, you know, and, and her perspective on this is that she, She's taken in all of this media and she's uncomfortable going to the boys' side. Like she, she doesn't want to do that. She says, no, I can't, I can't buy that. I'm like, wait, why? Like you're, she, she's falling into these kind of stereotypes just because of the, the way that she's been marketed to in the media, which is, again, it's terrifying. I find that really scary. Girls are deterred from science or maybe men, boys are more actively encouraged to go into engineering jobs or, you know, jobs that are considered high paying. And I remember a lot of my male friends, their parents would push them to either apply for law at university or medicine um, or, or physics and engineering, which are, you know, in the country I grew up in, perceived as the, the high paying subjects. Whereas 
a lot of the girls in my classroom didn't have such a push from the parents. So they had more freedom to choose what they wanted, but I don't think that their ambitions were as well supported. And I often wondered if maybe that led... Now when I look back, I wonder if that leads to the slightly you know, gendered expectations and some of the splits that you see. Because I saw a lot of of my male friends applying for things that they didn't want to do, but they, that they were pressured into doing. One of the things that when I speak with students that are considering PhD programs or considering academic careers now, usually they're in high school or high school seniors looking to apply to undergrad or undergraduate seniors looking to apply for their graduate programs. I sort of ask them, like, what else will you have? So what else is available on the campus you're going to or what other interests do you plan to pursue? And the line I always tell them is when your research fails, because it will fail, it's science. What is left in your life? Because if you don't have anything else, then your life just failed and that sucks. So I, I mean, there's the, the whole leaky pipeline concept. Um, and I guess to some degree, if we go back to, you know, the gender expectations, I guess at the age where you start to become fellow and professor, it's probably the age where most people are looking to have a family. And usually the woman is expected to take on a greater load than the man. So they might be put off by, you know, increasing working hours or increased responsibilities that may be less flexible. I mean, academia can be quite flexible, but there's also an expectation that you'll be putting in a lot of hours, you'll be available all the time. And I wonder if that's off-putting to quite a lot of women who might want to continue academia. Life, you get you get pushed around if you don't if you don't express yourself clearly and i think it leads to some confusion in your own mind even you're not clear you know when you start to say things it starts to become real sometimes or you can put words to those feelings so that you can categorize them that okay this is why i'm frustrated and i need to express it so that it doesn't linger so there's a lot of little pieces like that and i think Going through the ups and downs in our industry as well, I was doing all this work, but I think during the early part of my career, it was very flat, uh, you know, because they had in the U.S., which is where I'm based, and I started my career here, there was this hiring freezes, there were layoffs, so there was, you know, no opportunity to, to get the promotions and everything, and I started realizing that I was diminishing myself by not expressing myself clearly in meetings and everything. The wonders of technology means I can now see that there is someone doing the same thing as me in a world far, far away, even if there's no one in my direct environment. In work atmospheres, people don't people don't speak up about anything. You know, there will be a lot of tension between two people because they're not talking about it. How are you supposed to move forward and make things better if you if everyone's just keeping to themselves. I think it's important to have direct conversations. I also think it's important to like flag things at a higher level if that needs to happen, of course. But for these things, it's like, I feel that this is how I'm perceiving this. Am I incorrect in, in, in having the conversation? Um, it's not to make someone feel uncomfortable. It's to say, hey, you've made me feel uncomfortable. 
let's talk about why and let me understand where you're coming from. I'm I'm not like pointing my finger and being like, you're a sexist person. I'm just like, when you speak this way, this is how I, you know, it's, it's mostly for things like what she meant to say was, you know, in a group or something. I think that that's an inappropriate statement um, without checking in with the person or having a discussion, just like putting words into the mouth of someone that just said something. I mean, that's what we talk about that leaky pipeline, right? And you can, you can talk about all of the major issues. The first one that men usually bring up is, well, they have, they want to have kids and they spend less time in the lab trying to get tenure. Yeah. And the older I get, the more thankful I am because that's a trap you get into. And we know this from the research, right? We know that girls are, especially even little girls are more likely to be, to be praised for being pretty and cute and, and you know that's lovely what they're wearing and which is all very nice to do i mean you know i i embrace that but that doesn't that that feeds into something that you tell yourself then that pressure gets on that and what you said is very true because when i was in university i had uh, this really brilliant uh, girl who was my classmate and you know she was very feminine long hair lovely and very interested in theater and everything and we are multi-potential right just because i'm in stem doesn't mean i don't like art i love it but it's just what do i want to do with my life that's different i admire those who create art and all that but it's not like either or but i remember with this friend of mine in in college and she would be a little defensive like yes i i like engineering but you know i'm not a nerd i like theater and everything so she would take pains to to add that, but I'm also this. And in a way that, that to me diminished the fact that, hey, embrace it, love what you're doing and why you're doing it. Although I'm doing all of this stuff, I still get scared. It's just that I do it anyway because I know that I will survive and it's not the worst thing that's ever going to happen to me. And, and often the worst thing that can happen is pretty mundane. I did notice a difference between my family and other South Asian families that were around in, in London. And I remember, and I think it's because, first of all, my both my parents um, were educated and, you know, and there's a long tradition of, you know, people in my family doing interesting things that were multi-generational whereas I noticed that a lot of the families that I came across in London their parents were both uneducated or they were working in sort of factories and so I think my parents represented a smaller minority of the Pakistani community here who traditionally the majority came from a rural area where they um, you know came to work in factories and so my parents were you know, from a different socioeconomic group. And as a consequence, that's what gave me, you know, perhaps more confidence and more opportunities. Um, and so, you know, my mother, for instance, was a newsreader in the BBC equivalent in Pakistan. And, um, and you know, she set up various different businesses. And a lot of the girls in my classroom didn't have such a push from the parents. So they had more freedom to choose what they wanted. But I don't think that they're ambitions were as well supported and I often wondered if maybe that led now when I look back I wonder if that leads to the slightly you know gendered expectations and some of the splits that you see because I saw a lot of of my male friends applying for things that they didn't want to do but they that they were pressured into doing 
I, I very much grew up outside, like exploring. I was very into biology and animals and just collecting rocks like a crazy person. And then also doing like, you know, mandatory kind of shows. Like I would sell tickets to my whole family and be like, there's a show in the living room at 4 p.m. Don't be late. And so we had a very, very different home life. And I remember my brother used to make friends with, you know, other British Pakistanis boys. And they used to come to our house for lunch or dinner. And they used to say, oh, my God, your sisters have so much freedom. And oh, my God, your, you know, um, you know, your house is topsy turvy, your mother's in charge. And they were sort of, and they'd come to our house. And, you know, and I remember some of them used to sometimes say to me, oh, you shouldn't be wearing a skirt. And I would give them what for. And they were absolutely shocked um, that, you know, and, and they, that, you know, there, were, there was me, my sister, my mother were quite mouthy. And, um, and, and they were absolutely shocked because the women in their families, you know, were sort of just domestic slaves um, who put their needs below every, you know, male in the five mile radius. And we just were not bred like that. Um, so I remember also having conversation with my sister saying, you know, we can't marry into these families. Um, and the irony is that I ended up marrying an Italian and my sister ended up marrying an Indian from East Africa. Um, so I would definitely say that self-confidence has probably been a major one. So obviously growing up and not, I was never really the popular person in the school. Um, I was bullied quite a lot. <laughs> I think I was actually probably bullied every year I was at school. So it really made me second guess everything I did and worry a lot about how others perceived me and whether what I was doing was good enough for others to like me. And I think that's probably had some degree of influence. I think the other thing that hits a lot of people in academia um, is perfectionism, because the kind of, well, I don't want to generalise, but I do feel the kind of person who ends up going on to do a PhD is the kind of person who's quite driven. They want to they want to do something big or they want to make a contribution that's meaningful. And as I'm sure a lot of people who do science know, quite often science is about trying and failing at doing a lot of things and learning how to be okay with all that failure or, you know, lack of success in what we originally framed as success in science. Because I would go to other South Asian families and they would appear quite backward compared to my family. And so I realized from an early age that I have cultural affinity with these people, but yet their mothers, you know, are, you know, are sort of just cooking and cleaning and, you know, and there's no, they're not sort of working. And then the daughters are sort of following that. And whereas my mother was a very different type of mother um, where she was, you know, I mean, she was a feminist for starters. <laughs> It's worse to underreact than to overreact. Yeah. And this was another thing I was talking about with my friend. She felt that the men in the group had a lot more freedom to be curious and do their own thing, whereas the women felt they had a greater pressure to be perfect at what they were doing, so they were less likely to explore. And, you know, she said something that she perceived me as being one of the female role models in the group, which I wasn't expecting at all. Because, um, again, I felt like I've 
gone through my PhD feeling very self-conscious about how much I don't know about engineering or certain aspects of my research. Um, And I felt my way of coping with that was perhaps being a bit more isolated, but very much just buckling down and doing my own thing. But I also wonder whether that's given a different image or facade that I have just, you know, ignored what everyone else thinks about me and just done my own thing. And in some way that apparently has been inspiring. So it made me wonder a lot more about the perceptions we all seem to have of each other in the group and how much that is influencing what we all think about each other and our perceived expertise. I feel like they, we, and we women, we do this to the men as well, like in, even in our families and all that, especially given all this stuff coming out with Me Too and all these horror stories that we're seeing, that everyone's gone through some form of harassment, right, if you're a woman. But how many of us have told our fathers or our husbands or our brothers that this has mm-hmm. happened to me? Because we worry that they won't be able to handle it. We worry that, you know, either they'll overreact or or something. We, we break their heart or something. So we protect them. And they don't know the extent of the problem sometimes because we haven't told them that, hey, this happens to me, you know, almost once a year. Have you seen Amazon TV has a series um, called The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel? And in the pilot episode, it shows a woman, I think it's the 1950s. It shows kind of what the housewife looks like. And I'm bringing this up because she, you know, in her fabulous dressing gown, goes to bed next to her husband, waits for him to fall asleep, then wakes up, brushes her teeth, puts her hair in curlers, puts a kerchief over the curlers, puts the cold cream on her face so she looks like a terrible, horrific monster, and then goes to sleep. And then she wakes up early before her husband and she brushes her teeth and takes off the cold cream and fluffs out her hair and puts on makeup and then gets back into bed so she could just wake up like this. And that's only 50 years ago, right? Or 60 years ago. And it also sort of makes women feel as if, you know, if they're struggling, it's something that's wrong with them. And how liberating for us if we could just walk around in the hair curlers and the cold cream. I mean, I would love women to have enough confidence and self-worth and self belief to say you know what I want my hair in curlers and I want to wear the cold cream and that's just part of the whole beauty regime I did not wake up like this you know that's what I would like to achieve I think one of my biggest priorities is actually not to let myself slip into such a terrible work-life balance as I had within my PhD so actually appreciating staying in contact with people I care about, doing things that make me feel happy and ensuring that the work I do feels meaningful or that fills me with purpose, preferably work I enjoy, but sometimes you have to do things that you don't enjoy, but that you know are are important. So I think it's gone a lot more from perhaps goal-oriented to more value-setting and trying to ensure that I'm maintaining that over time. That being said, this is a totally new journey I'm about to go on. So I hopefully will be able to have it all in that way, but I don't know what that will look like specifically yet, but I am excited to see how it will pan out and 
to discover what that looks like for me. Yeah, I think that 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 is immensely important to craft those messages. And I think what I would say is that, well, for one thing, they can do anything. That anything is possible for real. I try really hard myself to talk to girls as, you know, just the same as anyone, right? Like asking them what they're thinking and what are you feeling about this and validating their feelings and their emotions. Um, I think that what I see is that girls, just like I feel actually, they have a tendency to apologize for their opinions. So it's a matter of just saying your opinion is valid and I want to hear your thoughts. You know, your brain is amazing. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear what's in your head. Um, you know, and you're, you're creative and you're interesting and you can do anything you want. Like, the, the world right now is incredible in that way. And there really is a lot of opportunity. And I hope that there's not as much exclusion. I mean, this whole movement that's happening right now, I, I am floored by the women that are coming, coming out and speaking up and saying, you know, this is why I didn't report sexual assault, because it's so pervasive culturally. So this level of uh, expression is really moving me, and I, I hope it continues. I, I think it's really powerful. My husband has been extremely supportive, and I think that I mentioned previously that a supportive partner is, is essential. You know, it's, it's important. And, you know, he's, he's changed the nappies, he's looked after the children, at a time and cook the tea and you know done things that women would traditionally do perhaps at a time many years ago when that that wasn't the thing that men did and he perhaps got a little bit of flack for not being very masculine because he was prepared to do those things and I think it's it's well worth remembering you know that um, the men in our lives are important in the supporting the women who are who are in STEM you know that's all for today. Please do subscribe, rate and review the show. I'd love to have your feedback. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow for more from the best of silence.